So we are uh, continuing our summer preaching series through the entire Bible. This, uh, this morning, we're not going through the entire Bible this morning, but we're going <laughs> to... Let me start again. No, uh, we're going we're gonna to actually read from the prophet of Jeremiah. We're, we're heading into the prophetic, prophetic genre of scripture. This week, you're invited to read uh, the whole text of Jeremiah. And if you're really daring to read both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, over the next few days. But before we read from the text this morning, I want to actually invite us back into a time of uh, silent contemplation. You know, there's a lot of noise going on around us. Uh, And and the thing about this noise is that it also gets within us. And we bring that noise wherever we go. And probably even here and now in this place. And the thing about this noise is that it has a tendency to crowd out uh, the holy So I just want to invite you just into a moment uh, of silent preparation so that we might actually uh, be prepared to hear what it is that God might say to us through the prophet Jeremiah this morning. Just invite you to take a moment to be quiet. Listen now for the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. (laughs) But they said, we will not walk in it. The word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. Pray with me. Holy God, be gracious to us as we have come this morning seeking a word that only you can speak. Help us to hear from your prophet Jeremiah for each and every one of our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think or when you hear about the word prophetic? I'll admit I have a bit of an allergic reaction to it. Um, I grew up in a community in which this term primarily applied to uh, predicting the future. And uh, so I'd you know, see folks, they'd get around and they would use the prophets to kind of look at events in our current culture and say, see, Told you. Prophets totally predicted this totally random thing that just happened. Um, I'm being kind of cynical here, right? But uh, if they really got out of hand, like this is the kind of thing that we would uh, end up with like a a very uh, concrete date for the end of the world, right? Um, And so I I got a little bit of allergic reaction when I hear prophetic kinds of utterances. And while the Bible shows that that the future is definitely a frame of reference for uh, the biblical prophets, that, that God sends them to kind of see around the corner about what's next, what's coming to Israel. The prophets in the Bible do a lot more than just kind of predict the future, what's about to happen. Later in college, I came to understand prophetic is speaking truth to power, which as it turns out, is so totally college of me, 
right? Like it's a great time to understand uh, the prophets that way. Uh, there's some power and you want to speak truth to it. Uh, this understanding of prophetic though is, is too often dismissed as a kind of form of progressive politics, right? Um, which I think is unfortunate because speaking truth to power about the, the needs of the poor, or the disenfranchised, the vulnerable, the weak, the forgotten, like this is, this is not a progressive thing. This is about as ancient as like the first five books of the Old Testament, okay? So it's unfortunate that it gets just paired with that platform and, and people dismiss it. And there's another tendency kind of within this, this speaking truth to power definition to uh, identify uh, the prophetic with anger. And the problem with that is that not all the prophets are angry. Some of them are just really sad. They're really sad. And Jeremiah is one of these sad prophets. He, his form of prophecy is grief. So, so what is the job of the prophet? As we read through this prophetic genre, what is the job of the prophet if not to predict the future or to kind of just speak truth to power? I want to suggest that the, the, ultimately the, the prophet's job is to spark our imagination for what the world should be and is not yet. To help us imagine that it could be otherwise than it currently is. So this morning, I, I think we should try to answer just two questions. The first is, what is the prophetic imagination of Jeremiah, specifically? And what does that imagination have to do with us here in 2017? So first... Jeremiah's imagination. The book of Jeremiah uh, describes and, and responds to a very particular crisis in Israel's history. It was the end of, of the kingdom as they knew it. Uh, the Babylonians were kind of at the gate, ready to, ready to come in and to, to destroy Jerusalem and to take them to exile. And we, we can't underestimate just how big of a deal this was in, in, to the people of Israel. I mean, the, psychologically, it would be similar to maybe like the morning after 9-11. So not necessarily in scope, but in terms of psychological effects, like this was utterly unthinkable. It's completely surprising to the people of Israel that they would be conquered this way. And it changed their world forever. So you might be wondering if, if you've not read through the Old Testament, how do we get here to this event in Israel's history? So just a bit of review. Uh, Israel's story kind of begins as they are uh, dramatically liberated from uh, slavery in Egypt, and God uh, guides them on a journey to the promised land, wandering through the wilderness. And just a few months after they were liberated from Egypt, God gives them uh, the law and makes a covenant with them. And so from that point on, Israel and God are kind of covenant partners. They're in this common, uh, very common covenant in the ancient world, bound up by mutual promises that they make to each other. So God uh, uh, promises to be a certain kind of God, and the people have obligations that they have to keep to, to God. And throughout the period of judges and, and the kings, as we have kind of walked our way uh, through, we see that Israel, whose, whose name is literally, literally means to struggle, which I love, uh, Israel struggles to keep their promises and they default on the obligations with the covenant. And as a result, God graciously sends prophets to remind them of their obligations, but also to warn them that if things don't change rather quickly, that economic and political consequences will follow soon after. So enter Jeremiah, who's called upon by God to go to Israel. And his job is both to criticize Israel, right, for uh, losing what let's call their, their holy imagination, to criticize them for that. But also his job is to energize them, energize them toward uh, an alternative possibility. 
So in chapter 2, Jeremiah writes, They did not say, Where is God, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? And speaking on behalf of God, Jeremiah says, I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is God? Those who handle the law did not know me. So according to Jeremiah, Israel has forgotten their story simply because they stopped telling it. What's worse is that as a result, Israel begins to believe that God exists merely to kind of prop up the status quo their life and their, and their power and their status and their privilege. Israel at this time, after Solomon's reign, had become a very affluent nation. And not everyone is affluent in that nation, but they are an affluent nation. And they start to think that God wants, essentially exists to protect that affluence and that, those interests. So there's a large group of people who uh, begin to put their hope in the monarchy and the kings and their ability to secure their border fight their battles, and lead them to prosperity. In short, there is a huge contingency in Israel to keep things exactly as they are. Exactly as they are. The only problem with this is that things exactly as they are are not headed anywhere great. As we said, uh, the result of Israel kind of defaulting on these obligations is that Babylon stands at the gate ready to conquer them. But because they're so committed to the status quo, the people kind of ignored the prophets who came to remind them of this. Jeremiah writes in chapter 4, The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly faithful, faithless to me, says the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No evil will come upon us, and we shall not see sword or famine. The prophets are nothing but wind, for the word is not in them. So here's the thing about prophets. They break silences that are really, really hard to break. And one of the reasons that they can do this, and they do it at great personal loss. One of my professors in seminary used to say, there's a, you know, prophetic is in vogue. Like it's a, people want to be prophetic. He, his response to that was, you don't want to be prophetic. Like you don't want to be that person. That is bad. Like all the prophets, like no one really survives the prophetic office. Uh, it's, it's, it, they, they do, they, they, they respond to their calling at great personal loss to themselves. And they almost always seem to come out of nowhere. They're uncredentialed, kind of ordinary citizens. And because they are, they're able to kind of critique the power arrangements because they're not, they're not part of it. But because they're uncredentialed, kind of nobodies, right, it's the case that they're usually ignored. Or worse, they're silenced. And so our task, when we read through the prophets, it's a very holy task, is not to silence them, not to ignore them, but to listen to them until their imagination for the world actually becomes ours. That's our task. Which brings us back to the text I began reading. Here Jeremiah is energizing the people of Israel toward hope in an alternative possibility. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look. 
and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. This is an alternative possibility to the status quo. We modern people think about imagination in the same way that we think about fantasy. It's kind of like nice, whimsical thoughts to kind of maybe lift us out of our current reality or the actual realities of our, our daily grinds. And because we think about imagination that way, I think maybe we, we miss this prophetic genre. Uh, in the ancient world, imagination is more than just wishful thinking. It's more than just daydreaming. Okay? In the ancient world of the Bible, imagination actually generates real possibility for what the world could be. In the words of one scholar in the Bible, imagination is the portal. Okay, it's the portal through which we can see the hand of God actually working. It's the means by which we hear the word of God speak to us, that change is possible. And so the prophets rarely begin with uh, where we often do, which is what's realistic? Or what's let's be practical here. The prophets begin with what is imaginable? What can I actually imagine about the world that I want to create and live in? And again, I worry that, that too often people like you and me begin with what is practical. What's realistic? Let's think in those terms. And let's kind of hold our noses, right, and, and choose from the bad options which are in front of us. Because those are realistic. The prophets don't kind of begin there. Nothing threatens imagination more than asking how before asking what. When was the last time? I mean, when was the last time, seriously, that you just simply imagined the world that you want to live in? Imagined the kind of community that you want to create. Imagine the kind of relationships that you want to have. Imagine the kind of spouse that you want to be or the parent that you want to be. Imagine the kind of flourishing that you want to contribute to, whether it's in your neighborhood, in your own home, at your work. Not just being realistic, but what, what can you imagine? If you're anything like me, it's you're not imagining. <laughs> because either you're too busy, um, or you think you're too busy, or because imagining what the world could be typically requires some hope beyond ourselves. Right? When I imagine what the world really could be, I'm immediately met with the fact that I can't, I can't create that on my own. I can't even create it with my own community. I can't create it here with this larger community. To, to imagine that world requires that I actually hope that God will meet, meet us there and do what we are not able to do. And frankly, like, I am way better at doing things than I am hoping and waiting, waiting for God to do things. Right? I think there was a quote in, in the... Um, the book Liturgy of the Ordinary that we read this Lent that said something like, I can't even wait at a stoplight without looking at Twitter. Like, how in the world am I going to wait for God to show up and do something? Right? Like, I, I just, like, I'm frantic, and I always have to be doing something. How in the world am I going to wait and hope for God to do something for me beyond myself? And it's into this kind of modern crisis of imagination that Jeremiah, I think, speaks to us freshly this morning. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. I'm really drawn to this path metaphor 
that Jeremiah lays out here. Um, I'm reading a book about walking, which I've told the two services before. This is the first time I've said that out loud. Uh, and I, I promise I'm a lot more fun. Like, everything's fine. My summer's great. Uh, but this book about walking is really interesting. It's written by British writer Robert McFarlane, and it's called The Old Ways. And he says that paths are the habits of a landscape. Paths are the habits of a landscape. Uh, the paths of any given place tell us a lot about the culture and the habits of the people who are in that particular place, right? Um, city planners and developers design paths, which we called sidewalks and roads. And those sidewalks and roads can kind of tell us a little bit about the habits of that culture, or most likely they can tell us a little bit about what kinds of habits the designers and the planners want us to have in that space, right? But McFarland says that you can look at a city from above, and really this is probably more true of, of, of maybe like rural areas, but you can probably see this if you, if you hovered above or if you got a drone and looked at Austin. That if you hover above, you can actually look down and see what they call desire lines. And if you're a planner, you might know what this is. A desire line is essentially uh, those like lines of packed dirt and flattened grass in fields and through pastures and through forests where people have decided that that's the way that they want to go, right? They've avoided the sidewalks, the place where people have told them to go, and they're forging their own way. These are what they're called desire paths. Um, we've all seen these, right? Like this is the place where people kind of say, I, I don't want to go that way, I want to go this way. You might have one like in your front yard that you wish your grandchildren would stop walking. I don't know. But we've all seen these, and, and I, I'm struck by this image that maybe what Jeremiah is doing is calling the people of Israel back to some kind of ancient desire path where they might be habituated in ways of hope. It's kind of calling them off the sidewalks and the roads designed by the kings and the dominant culture to take them where they want them to go. It says calling them back to this kind of maybe overgrown path where Israel previously tread, where they learned to hope in God, where they once again, hopefully, will learn how to hope again. Like leaving the sidewalk for a windy path through a field, right? The prophetic imagination helps us break loose from our comfortability, from our stability, and from our status, the status of our life, and into something a little bit more dynamic and unformed, where maybe once again, we can actually begin to hope that God would meet us there and guide us beyond ourselves. Ultimately, the people of Israel don't take Jeremiah up on his invitation here. The question that we have before us is, will we? Will you? We step off the sidewalk and onto the ancient desire path where you might learn once again how to hope. I read a quotation recently that, that those of you have, who have children will like. Um, I thought it applied well to our time and culture. It, it says, times are bad. Children no longer obey their parents. And everyone is writing a book. And while that might sound like it was tweeted on Friday, uh, there, uh, there is some attribution to Cicero, who actually lived like 60 years before Christ, who's a Roman lawyer and politician. And I share that quotation only to say that this call to an ancient path, right? This is not a call to like nostalgia. This is not a call to like the good old days, whatever those might be for you. The truth is that those days probably didn't really exist as maybe we imagined that they did. 
Um, and if they did, they weren't great for everybody. So this is not like this idea that like we just need to go back in time. The call back to the ancient path is, is a call to live with a fresh memory of what God has done to liberate us and save us in his power. That's what Jeremiah is asking them to do. So your memory is, is bad. You need to live with a fresh memory of who God is and what God has done for you. For Israel, it's the invitation to hope in God like they did while they were just wandering through the wilderness. Obviously, the situation here in North America in 2017 is far removed from ancient Israel. But I think that Jeremiah is pretty contemporary. I think all of the prophets actually are really contemporary. They speak to people who are comfortable with the way things are, or maybe who are uncomfortable with the way things are but lack any imagination to move forward with hope. Like Israel, we too can understand ourselves who have been claimed by a gracious God, but who have grown accustomed to the way things are. We too are people who understand how important it is for us to gather together and to tell of the mighty acts of God for us. And yet we struggle to continue to kind of tell those stories in ways that actually form us, ways that actually shape us. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's likely that you might have forgotten about that kind of initial joy, that initial clarity and hope that you had when your eyes were first opened by the gift of faith. Over time, as we kind of get more experience, that experience tends to crowd out our capacity to hope. As we kind of try to make sense of our lives in the middle of God's story, especially as we try to make sense of our lives and the suffering that we feel, the pain that we feel, how do we match that up with God's grace? Through all of that process, we, we begin to lose a little bit of our imagination. And as our, as our imagination kind of fades, so does our hope. So does our hope. The good news, right? The good news is that there's no better time than when your imagination is fading to be addressed by a prophet like Jeremiah. That's the good news. And the question that kind of still lingers over all of us is whether or not we will ignore Jeremiah or whether we'll listen to him. Whether we will look for the ancient path. Whether we will live with a fresh memory of God's grace in our life. And I said at the beginning of this service that we gather here to worship because we have a bad memory. We have a bad memory. Jeremiah's main accusation of the people of Israel is that you stopped telling the story. The priests stop asking, where is God? If you stop asking that question, you will stop hoping for God to show up. So not only do we gather for worship, but we gather around this table. Because it's in this table where we learn to hope. Right? It's in this table where we actually enact, we dramatize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his life for the salvation of the world. And if you notice every week when we share the words of institution, we end with, we do this to proclaim the saving death of Jesus Christ until he comes again to make all things right. And we do that so that we will continue to hope for that day. So this morning, 
I want to gather around this table. I'm going to invite you to come to this table. That you, be, you might be habituated in hope by this table. That your memory might be freshened by this table and by meeting Christ at this table through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was, after all, Jesus who gave us this table on a night that he was betrayed. He was just sharing a meal with his friends, with his followers. And he took a piece of bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread, as often as we drink this cup, we proclaim something. We proclaim what we hope for. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished something. And he will come again to make all things right. These are the gifts of God for the people of God with poor memories. I'd like to invite the servers to come forward.